I am on a mission, rather a path to discovering the connections of the mind, body, and spirit as it's linked to social justice work. Particularly, I am interested in the spiritual aspect of social justice work. Each episode, I will talk with scholars in various fields who are committed to social justice and social change to learn more about how they see spirituality connected to the commitment of justice and change. I am your host, Dr. Valen S. Jordan, diversity and social justice educator, and this is 824. In part two of my interview with Dr. Janine Canty, professor of environmental studies at Naropa University, a Buddhist-inspired institution in Boulder, Colorado, we continue to discuss how the oppression of earth and people go hand in hand. Dr. Canty presents us with the idea of disorienting dilemmas and that we can never truly become free of suffering, but we can become more skillful with responding to suffering. Listen now to part two of my interview with Dr. Janine Canty. I am your host, Dr. Valen S. Jordan, and this is 824. So I'm curious also, and, you know, as scholars, you end up, you write so many things, you publish in so many journals, and sometimes you forget about articles that you've written at some point in time. (laughs) Um, And so the idea of disorienting dilemmas, right? I read that in one of your articles. And so I'm curious as to how disorienting dilemmas fits into this understanding of maybe needing to challenge our current frameworks and our current worldviews that we hold about our home, about our, about the earth. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that question. And, um, uh, I'll put in a, uh, I guess everyone says a shameless plug. I don't know what that actually means, but I'll (laughs) um, name drop, um, my first book that I edited, it's called ecological and social healing, multicultural women's voices. And hmm. uh, there's uh, four, I think it's 14 of us, um, mostly women of color, speaking about the intersections of ecological and social issues in our work. And my primary chapter in that book is called uh, Seeing Clearly Through Cracked Lenses. And so I speak a lot about disorienting dilemmas in that piece as well. And when I did my um, doctorate, I was... I did a doctorate in uh, transformative learning and change at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And this idea of, um, so a lot of it was focused on how adults change their worldviews, which I think is so necessary. So many people say we need to start with the youth, um, but it's kind of like the chicken and the egg because we really need to work with the adults who are making so many of these decisions um, and not put so much pressure on the um, leaving it up to the youth. It actually needs to be everyone. And so how do we actually work with adults? And so there's this idea of disorienting dilemma. My students will often know them as, you know, double Ds. And it's really when you have some sort of experience that basically rocks your world, you're usually like, they, you usually don't feel good when it happens. Um, and you're basically stunned um, and not sure what just happened because you don't have 
um, it doesn't fit into your worldview. And so um, I, find, I find I have them often. Um, often they can be something that's painful around um, race. Uh, it can be experiences that just anything that um, your worldview doesn't have a framework for. And a worldview is um, defined classically. I'm sure there's lots of different worldviews, but in this um, field, perspective has um, two different dimensions. The first is a habit of mind, and the second is a resulting point of view. So the habit of mind is the conditionings that we hold. It's our um, our race, our how we were educated, our family of origins, their political background, uh, our, I think, I don't know if I already said religion, um, all of the things that we've been enculturated into that shape how we think. And um, everyone's situated in a worldview, um, which is quite ironic because so many people try to be objective neutral, which is totally impossible. <laughs> and then the second one, the resulting point of view is a misnomer because it's really how we act out our um, habit of minds, our conditioning. And so when we have a disorienting dilemma, we have an experience that doesn't fit into our um, habit of mind. And so we can't even kind of grok it. And so we have the choice of either reformatting the experience so it fits our original worldview, or we can actually um, meet the challenge and change our worldview to um, reflect what we actually experienced. And so um, I like to do lots of exercises in the classroom or when I do uh, workshops for the public that um, engage disorienting dilemmas. One of my, um, one that I like to do is asking folks when they first woke up to the ecological crisis, because often those are disorienting dilemmas. Um, and then we could relate a disorienting dilemma, like in Catholicism, there's that, um, um, or some forms, people will talk about um, the dark night of the soul, and also in like transpersonal psychology, just uh, where we actually have this um, basic collapse of our identity, where we feel that we're at the um, end of the rope and things aren't working and then we actually have to rise to the challenge and change that's so similar to like the hero's um, journey um, so all of these things where um, we're challenged in our worldviews and we can either stay the same um, continuing continuing just as things are or we can actually change and we see in a lot of our leaders um, today and in the past will often take things and put it into their current worldviews instead of actually meeting the challenge of change. And um, we see this with ecological issues, you know, like climate change doesn't exist, yet it's very clear it does. Um, and continuing to do, as uh, Joanna Macy and others will say, business as usual, same thing with um, racism and a lot of social justice issues. 
pretending those don't really exist or that we've already addressed them and you know we just need to trickle down some more stuff so everyone can be okay um, instead of really radically changing how we're acting um, in the world. So um, I'm, I am uh, thinking through this as I'm, as I was listening to you, wondering if how one we respond to those disorienting dilemmas when they come up mm -hmm. and two mission of, of suffering and knowing that suffering comes from our clinging to wanting things to be the way we hoped or assumed that they should be. Um, that suffering sort of originates out of notions of desire, out of notions of um, creations of struggling, right? Like a struggle that we've created on our own with, without, and I guess what I'm saying in that is that uh, we don't respond to the disorienting dilemma. And then in that we're creating some sense of struggle. Yeah. Um, through suffering. Yeah. So um, the key or one of the major keys to working with it is self-reflection. And so mm -hmm. um, definitely the mindfulness of meeting and seeing and really um, admitting to what's happening um, is huge. So we often project our experiences in our head, but we never necessarily let it resonate in our um, present awareness and our bodies, our full selves. And so it's like um, an alcoholic who never really feels kind of the damage and the pain and the suffering of what's happening, um, or even just like um, simple things like when we know we're doing something that hurts, but we don't want to um, stop and reflect on that and feel the hurt. We'd rather be in our heads about it, yet often the headspace is creating more hurt than the real pain of it. And so if we attended and fully let ourselves feel the emotion work with the emotion, uh, be with it, it's going to shift into something else and we get energy from that. Um, I often reflect on when I feel like I'm at the end of the rope, uh, maybe I have heartbreak or what, you know, whatever it is. Um, I always think about this moment. I went through a really painful breakup once once, no, more than once, but this <laughs> one time, um, and I was out on my um, outside, um, you know, crying, and I was so sad. And then I, but I was feeling, I was feeling that pain, and through my tears, all of a sudden, I noticed how beautiful it was outside, and there was like a little bird flying around me. And all of a sudden, I was just like, oh, you know, things are just so beautiful. <laughs> uh, but it's that, that sense that if we actually can dive into the trueness of suffering, um, there's a way out. But if we're always avoiding suffering, yet spending all our time thinking about the suffering, but really never penetrating fully what that feels like, um, 
then it's not going to change. I don't know if that makes, makes sense. No, it does. And I was going to ask you to repeat that about the trueness of suffering. Yeah. The trueness of suffering. Um, I guess just being able to drop into the situation, uh, people in recovery movements talk about hitting rock bottom. And so it can be for something really huge or just um, kind of smaller forms of suffering or temporary, more temporary forms of suffering of allowing ourselves to take the time to uh, feel it, drop into it, and also reflect on it. Um, you know, this is what it feels like. Um, maybe these are how the circumstances um, created this situation. Um, how am I meeting this challenge? And so we don't necessarily want to think our way out of it, but we do want to be able to join our sensory awareness and our mental awareness. And I think the spiritual part too, because um, I do believe that when we put out what our suffering is in a larger scope, whether we you know, whisper it <laughs> um, in our silences um, or tell it to others, um, something bigger than ourselves um, shows up and helps. I fully believe that. Um, so by being able to attend to our suffering, we also find a way to work with it and maybe even move away from it Not and we'll never be free from suffering, but we become more skillful. There's uh, a lot of people in our society that just can't deal with um, losses, um, big and small, because they haven't learned how to work with it. And um, every um, failure, setback um, is the biggest thing um, rather than uh, if we learn how to work with it, it becomes an opportunity. That's what I love about disorienting dilemmas. Um, when I'm having one, they don't feel great. But if I can start noticing that I'm having one and start working with it, I can also be like, hey, this is pretty cool. Even though I feel like crap right now and my world's falling apart, something's changing and something's emerging. And so it's kind of like that truth that um, all we're guaranteed in life is um, birth and death. So, and you said that, and then I, the first thought that came to mind is, oh, disorienting dilemmas is like meeting your edge. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. There's this, um, saying in uh, permaculture, which is a field that um, a lot of people associate with um, growing food, but it, it goes through many different, it's like systems, earth systems designs, but it talks about how two um, eco zones, so maybe you have a forest and um, I'm not an ecologist, even though I teach in environmental um, studies, but like maybe a forest and then a prairie on the edge between those two zones, there's often plants that aren't found in either zone. So they're an emergent process. 
and um, in my work, in that chapter I was mentioning um, seeing clearly through crack lenses, I actually write about how it's those of us that are straddling multiple worldviews. So maybe around um, race and gender and different religions and economics and whatever um, situations that we have so, um, you know, being multicultural, all of these different things that when we have to hold multiple worldviews, we actually now have an emergent property that a lot of folks don't have and able to hold multiple perspectives and multiple solutions. And uh, in eco-psychology and also this area I teach deep ecology, there's something called the ecological self. And this is when we move away from our small, like narcissistic, narcissistic egos to one that includes um, the more than human world. So the little bird or the, um, the river, the bioregion, whatever other beings are in our spectrums in a way that we see that um, we're bound up in our destiny. And so I might um, develop love and affinity for a non-human. We also do this with uh, humans. My um, mentor I mentioned before, Carl Anthony, talks about this multicultural self where we actually learn the stories of many different um, cultural backgrounds, different peoples, you know, diversity when we have different friends or even family members or um, whatever it is, we actually begin to hold multiple perspectives. And then we, when we can put together the multicultural self and the ecological self, um, we kind of move into the form of uh, transpersonal psychology and uh, transformative theory talks about um, a self-transforming self where our um, spectrum of being starts getting wider and wider. So we no longer identify with just ourselves. We're identifying with so many different beings, both seen and unseen, you know, from the ancestors to the river, to our neighbor, to um, so many different beings that we are able to hold um, the widest perspective possible for our unique self. And when we do that, we can um, hopefully operate and act in a way that holds the greatest good possible rather than um, just acting in our own self-interest. Yeah, so as we've been going through this conversation, we've been loosely sort of talking through mind, body, spirit connections. And maybe I shouldn't say loosely, but we haven't specifically defined mm -hmm. them as mind, body, but we have been talking about it. And so I'm curious as to um, how you work on your mind, body, and spirit, and how you see the connection of those, of the three to social justice and social change. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. I know we've got lots in common and that I'm a big uh, yoga practitioner. I started doing yoga um, over 20 years ago. Um, and so not only yoga, but also being outside 
um, are huge things for me. And around the same time, actually right around the same time I started yoga, I started meditating. And so I um, meditate most every day, uh, working at Naropa often more than once a day, because <laughs> we really, uh, <laughs> that's one of our, the cornerstones of what we do there. And um, that's really, really um, helped me in a way that it's not about closing myself off from the world, but actually being in the world in a way that I can um, learn how to reframe my um, patterns of thinking so I can attend to the present um, rather than thinking about the past or the future or um, you know whatever illusions I might dream up, good or bad. Um, and the, the yoga piece is not only um, physically healthy, but I think it brings a certain type of humbleness of you know doing an hour or so of um, you know slow yet rigorous movement in different postures that in a lot of ways are meant to serve and and also make not only our bodies flexible but our minds flexible and hopefully our spirits flex flexible um, the I was born um, I was baptized Catholic, but my parents, my dad had to convert to Catholicism in order to marry my mom, but then we never went to church. And so I wasn't really indoctrinated into any um, tradition, although my, you know, my dad was like, well, we're Christians. And, um, what's really funny, actually, when I was little, we, and to this date, when I met my parents, we always say grace before dinner. And he um, grew up Baptist, but I don't think he ever went to church either, rarely. Um, but yeah, I know. We're laissez-faire Christians. Um, but we'd always say grace, but I, um, there was kids' grace, which was uh, um, God is good, God is great, thank you for our food, amen. But as a child, I thought it was, I was always saying goddess grace. Um, wait, goddess grace, goddess good. <laughs> and so I I guess I grew up thinking in terms of like a uh, feminist theology. <laughs> like I really thought, um, I still do kind of think that um, God is female. And now I don't even, I think, um, I don't have a human identified um, God worldview. Um, but I've always been drawn to um, religions and spirituality. So I used to always, I always was, sad that my parents didn't take us to church so I would go to um, church with my friends and also um, synagogue and then two of my aunts were um, from different Buddhist traditions and um, and then I say now that I'm more of a pagan Buddhist <laughs> if there's such a thing so um, kind of more earth-based now traditions and so I often I'll bring up this, um, I like to call it suitcase religions. And those are traditions where you can, wherever you go, you bring them as kind of a worldview. Um, but for me, spirituality um, can't just um, be carried with you wherever you go in that way, because it's actually a direct relationship to earth. So you actually have to participate in the relationship 
most often in the um, spaces and places that you um, live and breathe and walk around. And so for me, that's where the most um, spiritual um, senses come, you know, whether it's the moon rising, stars twinkling, the sunrise, the, I live in a pretty um, wild area outside of Boulder, Colorado. And so there's like yesterday morning, I woke up and I pulled open the curtains and there was a, um, a mother deer with her two really young um, fawns or their her does and they had their new fur on and I was like now that's one of those experiences that you're like wow and you feel it in your heart um, I'm rambling at this point <laughs> no you're not and it's um what you're sharing I think is helpful for folks who um, don't know what the definition of spirituality mm. is and I think there are multiple definitions of spirituality and it's probably intentional that we can't necessarily define um, something that is one so personal but also happens so publicly Um, and um, and it's and it's also just interesting for me to hear from um, people in the academy as much as I don't like calling (laughs) it the academy but people who work in to talk about spirituality, right? And how um, spirituality informs their lives and, and um, how it informs the work that they do. Mm. And so, no, you were certainly rambling. You were certainly sharing a lot as to, one, your sense of mind, body, spirit connection, um, how you engage it, how you utilize it, and what spirituality means to you right now, right? Because I think in a lot of ways, spirituality continues to change. It's not stagnant. It does not stay the same. It is by far probably the most dynamic thing that many of us can experience. Um, And so how do you see your sense of spirituality keeping you in this work? Or do you think it keeps you in the work that you do? Yeah. I mean, yes, (laughs) I think there's something about, um, well, I mean, I said before that I really do subscribe to that idea of basic goodness, which uh, the Naropa community talks a lot about, but it's, you know, uh, is found in so many different wisdom traditions. And so I feel like there's so much inherent um, potential and um, beauty and love and positivity in all beings. And so it's just our conditioning and our actions and um, our circumstances that we're um, born into um, that start changing how we manifest our goodness in the world. And so there's definitely something that quest that that serve us to make things more um i guess liberated accessible for as many um beings as possible um to have the freedom to um to experience contentment and joy and beauty in this world there's so many um people um and and non-people that are oppressed 
by different circumstances and systems and it's unjust, it's unfair, and it's heartbreaking. And if there's something that I can do about it, I, I want to do that. And so I think, I, yeah, I think about that a lot. As a small child, I thought about it a lot. I felt this incredible sadness of our world. I, I was really sad as a child and, um, and also really joyful as a child. And I still feel um, similar. Um, I can go from those extremes or even, as I was saying before, have them <laughs> at the same exact time and anger. Um, but yeah, I feel passionate about um, serving and the ground of being comes from uh, what we're calling spirituality, that there's something greater that connects us all. And so, um, you know, many um, wisdom traditions talk about, or scholars and practitioners talk about how all beings are our beloved. And so we need to protect and care for one another. And I, I truly believe that. Um, and the one thing that you said towards the end there that seems to be uh, the common theme and the same phrase that I have heard from every single person mm. I've interviewed is this sense of wanting yes. to serve. That um, at some point in time, it, the light bulbs went off and you received the message that you were to be here to serve. And I think that's probably one of the larger messages that I'm picking up around spirituality is this uh, sense and urgency to want to show up for others because you recognize your connection yeah, to others, definitely. right? And yep, um, and and that for me is is incredibly inspiring, and I love hearing it over and over Aww, and over again. Yeah. Um, and I'm also learning how much you and I do have in common, aside from the yoga and the mindfulness and doing some of this work. You mentioned earlier about your family being from, or your dad's family being mm -hmm. from Harlem. Same for my father's oh, family wow. from Harlem. My grandparents grew up on the same block together, um, and they've been married for seventy years now. They've known each other. Since oh my they were gosh! Um, yeah, so it's just interesting, <laughs> like to yeah. one somebody who has New York roots, but then um, you know, under having these understandings and learning from people who have New York roots to think so deeply and differently about biodiversity mm -hmm. when you have sort of the concrete jungle in your backdrop um, is, is also really inspiring. And, and, and I'm grateful that I got to hear oh, that from you. Vice versa. So as we end here, I like to ask people a couple of words um, and get their definitions of them, ask them just to define a few words for us. So how would you define liberation? Ooh, um, let's see. Liberation. I think that's um, really being able to see the um, constrictions that have been um, constructed for us with societal structures and to be able to um, kind of crawl out of them in a way that lets our fullest self flourish. 
how would you define synergy? <laughs> yeah, I saw that word. I don't, I, in Boulder, I think it's a popular drink at Whole Foods, <laughs> but, <laughs> but in general synergy, I think that's when um, maybe two entities combine, there's like some sort of mutual resonance. I um, personally love the word synchronicity, which I think um, relates to synergy, but for me has a little more meaning, which it means meaningful coincidences. Um, But I think both are really talking about the um, energetic properties that emerge when um, we're connected to something greater than ourselves. And last one, how do you define courage? Ooh, I love the word courage. Uh, I think the actual definition has something to do with enlarged heart. And um, so I think living and acting from a big heart And at Naropa, we talk a lot about warriorship and how being a warrior is not like having a bunch of guns or knives or that kind of stuff, but it's actually um, having the tools of compassion and insight. And I think living from an enlarged heart um, and acting from those values is courage. I love that. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It has been such an honor to uh, spend this hour with you and um, to witness the work that you're doing. What you've, uh, what you're creating is uh, so needed and uh, really inspirational. And I'm um, excited to be connected and uh, be connected for a really long time, hopefully. Yeah, I hope we are able to continue this relationship and continue to just be in contact and conversation with each other. Um, It was truly a wonderful hour. Uh Thank thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the second part of this interview with Dr. Janine Canty. And thank you for listening to 824. Today, July 25th, is the second anniversary of Yoga for Social Justice. I want to thank all who have supported the growth of Yoga for Social Justice and your continued listenership of this podcast. I will be taking a break and I will return with season two of 824 on August 24th, which is also my 34th birthday. Be well and thank you.